Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Thank you for joining us. Devoted beats every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Tonight, we are continuing the series, The Truths We Confess. God, Jesus, you said that man is not to live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You said that, that you were the, the true manna that came down from heaven and, 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 and satisfied souls, Lord. And so I pray that that would be true right now that your word would satisfy us, that it would feed us, that it would fill us, that it would strengthen us, it would equip us to walk in this world and represent you as your children, Lord. We saw that there's responsibilities, there's privileges that we have of being your child, Lord, and, and we want to fulfill those responsibilities and we want to uh, accomplish and, and uh, enjoy all the privileges that you have for us, Lord. But a lot of that comes from being in your hearing from you, being led by your spirit. We ask that you do these things for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight we're talking about adoption, right? We're going through this series uh, that I've entitled The Truths We Confess. We're going through the Westminster of Confession of Faith, you know, one doctrine at a time. And again, we're, we're not necessarily teaching the Reformed doctrine of the confession, but we're using these as topics as to kind of go through as, as a map for us. So that way we end up covering all the practices of the church. And I believe that this study and going through this is extremely important for us today. One of the reasons I believe it's so important uh, that we study these doctrines is because in Jude 3, we're commanded to contend for the faith. We tend to think of the church's greatest responsibility or our greatest job here on earth is to fulfill the Great Commission, to go out and to make disciples. And that is a, a great responsibility, a great task that the Lord has given us. But I feel there's an even greater task that we've been given as the Church of Christ. And that is to earnestly contend for the faith, to, to fight for right doctrine, for orthodox doctrine. In Jude 3, Jude says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about your common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once delivered for all handed down to the saints. You see, if, if we fail to do this, if we fail to contend for the faith, if we fail to fight for right doctrine, what's going to happen is this, is, is Christianity is going to get so muddy. And, and there's going to be all these different groups with all these different beliefs, and nobody's going to know what right doctrine is. 
And then we're going to go out. We're going to try to evangelize people. We're going to try to make disciples. And we're going to, you know, tell them about Jesus. And, and you're, they're probably going to say something like this. Well, what version of Christianity? You, you guys can't even agree on, on what you believe. Why should I believe? You see, if we don't contend for the faith, we're not going to have anything to actually evangelize people to. And, and we're living in an age now where people haven't contended for the faith. And now it's all muddy. And, and, and we have all these different groups of Christians who are fighting with each other about what the Bible really says. We don't have the unity that Christ wants us to have. And that's affecting our witness. That's affecting our power. Throughout the ages, there's been men that have given their lives for these doctrines. Men that have literally died to the doctrine of justification by faith. Men that were willing to risk everything, to, to, to say, no, that's heresy. This is right doctrine. And we've gotten away from that. And now the church is in a weaker spot. So it's essential that the church has right doctrine and that we're in unity regarding this doctrine. Historically, creeds and confessions like the Westminster Confession of Faith have been used by the church to achieve the kind of unity that we're talking about. In theology, we have what's called the order of salutis, or the order of salvation. Uh, we see this in Romans 8, chapter 30. In Romans 8, it says this, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. This, uh, you know, uh, foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, glorifying. These are aspects of our salvation. Now, there's other aspects of it, too, like adoption and regeneration, sanctification, and others that aren't listed in this order here. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because I don't want us to stress on the order of these. Uh, yeah, we should get the ones that are given to us right. Like, we should get it right that uh, foreknowledge comes before predestination and predestination comes before calling. But the ones that aren't given to us in exact order, uh, I, I don't think we really need to get so stressed out about the order that they're in. There's a lot of theologians and Bible teachers that have some of these in a different order. A lot of these happen simultaneously, like regeneration and faith. And I'm sure you guys have heard the expression that regeneration precedes faith. And, and, and don't even get that mixed up because that's not speaking in a, a chronological order, right? The regeneration and faith happen at the exact same time. The second that we exercise saving faith, we're regenerate. We're born again. We're born of the Spirit. They happen simultaneously. But we say regeneration precedes faith because it's kind of in the order of importance. Because the natural man can't exercise faith. They don't have the Spirit of God. They don't understand the things of God. It's un unable to please God. So something has to happen to them before they could actually exercise faith. And so we say that regeneration precedes faith. But in a, a chronological order, they're happening simultaneously. So the timing of these events aren't exactly what's important. What's important is that we know that these have happened in our lives. You see, if we're going to experience all the blessings God wants us to, we need to know all that he's done for us in saving us and what the implications of these 
things that he's done for us in saving us off. And tonight, the aspect of this salvation that we're going to be talking about is adoption. Adoption in the New Testament is the Greek word, huithesia. It's a Greek phrase that describes the act of raising a child who is not biologically related. Paul uses it to describe God adopting humans. It's implied elsewhere in the Bible to represent membership in the family of God. That's the Lexin Bible Dictionary. Bible dictionary definition of adoption. This Greek root word for adoption also is used uh, sometimes to speak of sonship. So adoption and, and sonship are, are go together. That's because adoption is being brought into the family of God. It's how we become sons of God or daughters of God. What does Raymond often say? Right? We're, we're not an audience, but we are a family, right? He says that all the time. And it's through adoption that we become a part of this family of God. Fill this in in your first fill-in. Adoption, we are given the family name. So fill in the word name. It's a name change, right? On my way here, I was taking the 91, and I got off the Imperial and turned left, and then turned left on La Palma, and just right east of us, there's a shopping center, right? And in that shopping center, there's a sign for the contractor of the shopping center, Epstein and Associates. And every time I see that, I'm like, man, I would change my name. There's no way I would still call myself Epstein, much less my business, Epstein and Associates. Like, there's no way I would have that name, right? There would be a name change. But that's not the type of name change that I'm talking about. You see, in the Bible, name is often associated with character, what type of character one possesses. We see God changing people's names throughout the Old Testament to match their character, or, or parents prophetically naming their kids something that's going to represent a character that they are going to have, right? And, and we think of the way God created everybody in Genesis 1, right? It says that he created us in his image. Male and female were created in his image. But then the fall happened in chapter 3, and that image gets marred. We're still in the image of God in that condition, just it's, it's really marred. It's, it's difficult to see. But once we get redeemed, we're brought into the family of God. Now we're going from one degree of glory to the next, being transformed into the image of Jesus, and we're able to see more and more of the glory of God, which is what we are created to do, to display that glory. So more and more of the character of God is seen in us. And, and I believe that's what we're getting at as far as this new name. It's not like my name becomes Yahweh or, or Christ or something like that. No, I, I start to look more and more like God. I'm more and more able to see God's glory in me. So we're given a new name. John 1, verse 12 and 13 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So everybody who exercised saving faith in Jesus Christ and who's born of God has the right to be called a child of God. They're brought in to God's family. And as we're going to see tonight, God's family comes with many rights and privileges. These are afforded to us because 
Through adoption, we inherit the family name. We belong to God's family, so we get the privileges of being in God's family. See, if a family goes out and adopts a child, that child becomes part of the family. They have all the rights and privileges of being in said family. Now, sanctification is the process in which we begin to take on that family resemblance. That hypothetical child that we adopted, the longer he's in our family, the longer he has that father and that mother and those siblings, the more he's going to resemble them, the more he's going to talk like them, the more he's going to like the things that they like and dislike the things that his old family liked. And this is the change that God is working in us. The longer we are in his family, the more we're going to start to look like him. Paul uses this word, kuithesis, five times here in the New Testament. And he's the only author to use it. So I want to look at these passages where John U- or Paul uses the word adoption or huithesis. The first one is, is Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. So you guys turn with me to Romans 8 real quick. Romans 8 is all about the spirit, the spirit's working in the, the life of the believer. But starting in verse 14, it says, For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. Indeed, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. I mentioned Romans 8 is all about the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. In verses 14 through 16, Paul Paul is stressing the role that the Spirit plays in giving the believer assurance of his or her salvation. In verse 15, we see part of this assurance that the Holy Spirit produces comes from us knowing that we belong to the family of God, that God has adopted us into his family. And then in verse 16, he says that God's spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. This is our inner assurance. God's spirit is supernaturally assuring our spirit that we are children of God. This is a supernatural assurance that the believer should possess, knowing that he's in God's family. God wants us to have that. And the Spirit's role is to give us that assurance. In Romans 8.23, just a few verses down, Paul writes, or, uh, I'm sorry, the, the fill-in here is benefits, the future benefits of our adoption we see in Romans 8.23. But Paul writes this, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. You see, since Adam and Eve, all of our bodies are deteriorating and almost and dying one day. One day we will all die. But being in God's family gives us a hope, gives us an assurance that we're not going to ultimately end that way. Right? One day we're going to receive new bodies that aren't corrupted by sin and cannot decay or die. So one of the things that the adoption gives us is a hope for future benefits. 
In Romans 9, 4, just a few more verses down, we see adoption first belonged to Israel, and this stresses the continuity of the people of God. So fill in Israel and continuity. In Romans 9, 4, Paul says, Who are Israelites? To whom belong the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the temple service and the prophecies? In chapters 1 through 8 of Romans, it's all about the gospel. And in chapters 1 through 8, in chapter 1, we go from the wrath of God. You know, everybody's under God's wrath. And then in chapter 8, we get to, uh, we're sons of God, right? This, this, this redemption has taken place. And we've gone from being under wrath to being children of God. We're in the family of God. But then in chapters 9 through 11, uh, Paul kind of shifts gears. And now he's going to give the history of salvation. And say it started with Israel, but they blew it, and the Gentiles were brought into this family. But once God brings all the elect Gentiles into his family, he's going to bring Israel back as well. These chapters, Romans 9 through 11, make two things clear. First, it makes clear that God isn't done with Israel. And second, it makes clear that there's there's continuity in God's family, right? That uh we aren't in a different family than Abraham or David. They are our brothers. There's there's one family of God throughout the entire history of redemption. In Romans 11, verses 11 through 26, so kind of a longer passage, but I think it's important to read. Paul says this, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of the dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them in the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in? Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For you, are, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. 
For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that they will, you will not be wise in your, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Israel is going to be saved. God's not done with Israel. Yeah, it's going to come through the tribulation. Two-thirds of them are going to have to die. They're going to have to go through the time of Jacob's trouble. It's going to suck for the nation, but God's going to seal the remnant and preserve them through it and have a kingdom, an actual kingdom, where Jesus is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem over the nation of Israel, over the whole world. So, so we see God's not done with Israel. But we also see that there's there's one one olive tree, right? That that us, we're being grafted in into the, the, the same branch or the same trunk that Israel was a part of. Right? There's one people of God throughout the history of redemption. Next we have Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7, the passage that we looked at earlier. Here we see we become heirs of adoption through Christ's obedience. Through Christ's obedience. Uh, in verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his Spirit, or spent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So it was Jesus' active and passive obedience that allowed God to adopt us into his family. Jesus coming and fulfilling the law perfectly, dying the penalty of the law on our behalf. That's what allowed his righteousness to be imputed to us. This is what we covered last week, right? The double imputation. Our sin, our works were imputed to Jesus on the cross. His righteousness is then imputed to us. This is what gives us justification. This is what allows us to be right with God and a part of God's family. Ephesians 1, through 1 verse 5. Fill in the word eternity past. God chose us for adoption in eternity past. Ephesians 1 verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. You know, when a couple adopts a baby, it's not like they take that baby home that day, right? Often they start this process of adoption, and, and it often could take quite a long time. I have a, a friend, uh, Joel Wingo, who used to be the president of the Bible College, actually. <clears throat> They've adopted a few kids. But there was this set of twins that he was trying to adopt, and it took him over two years to legally adopt these kids. Because every time they got close to adopting it, the grandmother or the birth mother would try to retain custody of these kids because they get a check from the government for those kids, sadly. And so it kept delaying and delaying and delaying the process of them actually being able to take these kids home. And I just say that because it illustrates the fact that when, when you go to adopt a kid, it, it takes time. Well, the same thing could be said in, in the economy of God, right? Yeah, our adoption took place in a point in time, you know, most of us probably within the last 30 years. 
But God started that process thousands of years ago, before he even created the world. Look what it says in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Before God even started the act of creation, God chose us to be adopted into his family. That is awesome. And think about Think about the day that we get saved, right? Think about that. The, the, the day that we're actually brought into that family. My friends that, that adopted those twins, I mean, it, it was the happiest I'd ever seen them when they actually got to bring those kids home. God, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, has been anticipating the time where we would be brought into his family. And when that actually took place, think about the party that went on in heaven. So these are the, the five passages where Paul uses the word adoption. But there's a few uh, examples of adoption in the Old Testament. Uh, for instance, Moses was adopted. Remember Pharaoh was getting a little sketched out because the children of Israel were multiplying so fast and they were growing in number. And he's thinking, hey, pretty soon there's going to be so many of them that they're going to be able to kind of overpower us militarily and they're going to take our power, and so he starts having the, the male sons that are born killed. That way they wouldn't be able to be a part of the military, the army, or the coup that he thinks that they're going to do. And, and what does Moses' mom do? She takes Moses and puts him in a basket, or like a little ark, and puts him in the Nile River. He's floating down. And she tells his sister, Miriam, to sit there and watch and see what happens. And Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe, and and finds Moses and sees that he's beautiful and, and wants to take him in. So Miriam, Moses' brother, runs and tells her mom. And, 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 and it, God providentially works it out where Pharaoh's daughter is looking for somebody to nurse this child. And Moses' mom gets to nurse Moses. So in a sense, Moses' mom gave birth to Moses and then for a time adopted Moses. And then ultimately, Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses, and Moses grew up a prince in the palace in Egypt and had all the rights and privileges of being in Pharaoh's family. So Moses is a, an example of adoption in the Old Testament. Furthermore, Esther was adopted. Esther lived during the time of captivity. Her parents were dead, so her uncle Mordecai adopted her and raised her as his own daughter. Probably the best picture of adoption is a guy named Mephibosheth. Anyone know who Mephibosheth is? Jonathan's son, right? Remember, Jonathan was David's best friend, but also Saul's son. So, so David's in a predicament, right? Jonathan's his best friend, and Saul's trying to kill him. Saul hates him. Saul wants him dead. And Mephibosheth, remember, got crippled. They're running down the hill, and his parents drop him, and his legs get crippled. His parents die, and he really didn't have anything. 
But when King David learned about Mephibosheth, he gave him all the land that had belonged to his grandfather Saul, and he honored his son as his dearest friend Jonathan by having him dine regularly at the king's table in the palace in Jerusalem. It's a fascinating story. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 9. I encourage you guys to read it. But I especially like what John MacArthur said about these three examples of adoption. He says, Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses out of pity and sympathy. And although Mordecai dearly loved Esther, his adoption of her was also prompted by family duty. But David's adoption of Mephibosheth was motivated purely by gracious love. In many ways, David's adoption of Mephibosheth pictures God's adoption of believers. David took the initiative in seeking out Mephibosheth and bringing him into the palace. And although Mephibosheth was the son of David's closest friend, he was also the grandson and sole heir of Saul, who had sought repeatedly to kill David. Being crippled in both his feet, Mephibosheth was helpless to render David any significant service. He could only accept his sovereign's bounty. The very name Mephibosheth means a shameful thing. And he had lived a number of years in Lodabar, which means a barren land, literally no pasture. David brought this outcast to dine at his table as his own son and graciously granted him a magnificent inheritance to which he was no longer legally entitled. That's an exact picture of what God has done for us. Furthermore, Israel was adopted by God in the Old Testament. We read a very, very graphic picture of this in Ezekiel 16, 1 through 14. For the sake of time, I'll, I'll go ahead and skip that. But I encourage you guys to read that as well. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel depicted as God's child or son. In Exodus chapter 4, uh, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and to tell him, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. I say to you, let my son go and serve me. Deuteronomy 14.1, they're giving instructions to the children of Israel about what they can and can't do. And it says this, you are the sons of the Lord your God, and you shall not cut yourselves or shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. Right? Those were things that the people living around the children of Israel would do. And God's saying, you're different. You're my son. You're, you're in my family. You're not going to act like the rest of the world acts. Isaiah 40, 43, verse 6, I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. So we see God considered Israel his son. And it's through the lens of sonship that we could best understand the prophet's ministry and God's judgments on the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. See, God was sending prophets to his sons and daughters, to his family, to call them back to repentance, to call them to return to the Lord, because he loved them, he cared for them, he didn't want to have to judge them. When we look at the Old Testament, we look at Paul's use of the word, we see that Christians now take the status and the privilege of being the people of God. But I want us to see this. There's a big difference between the way that we see adoption today and the way that adoption 
was seen in the first century Roman world. Today, when somebody adopts a kid, they do it because that kid needs parents. There's, there's no one to care for that kid, right? There's, there's a child who, you know, has a need. And so somebody feels pity and adopts it. That didn't really happen in the first century Roman Empire. Those kids were just tossed out. Sometimes Christians would go and grab them from the trash heap and bring them in. But, but that was kind of rare. You see, adoption in the first century it had more to do with the family business. Think about this. If, if, say I have a family, I have four or five sons, and, and I have a family business that I run, and it provides for me and for my wife and my four or five sons and for their wives and all their kids, this one business. But now I'm getting old, and I'm realizing, hey, I'm going to die. And my, I love my sons, but they aren't me. <laughs> they don't have the skills to run this business the way I do. If I give it to them, it's going to be running to the ground. And within a year, it's not going to be able to provide for any of them. So I would seek out an heir. I would seek out a man smart enough, somebody that I respect to adopt as a son to take that position of running the family business. And that person would be adopted into my family. And oftentimes, that person would actually have uh, greater protection greater rights and privileges than my legitimate sons. See, honoring your parents was a big thing back in the day. And if you didn't, you could get disinherited. You could get cut off from the family. But once and if somebody is adopted into the family, they could never be disinherited. They enjoy permanent sonship status. There's nothing that could separate them from that family. And on top of that, they received the firstborn's uh, uh, inheritance. They got the same inheritance as the firstborn. Oftentimes, if there was, say, two sons, right, the uh, firstborn would get two-thirds of the inheritance, and the secondborn uh, would get one-third, right? And it's just the way that it was designed. The firstborn got a double inheritance. Well, the adopted son would get a double inheritance as well. You say, wait a minute, that belongs to Christ. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Well, yeah, but we're, we're co-heirs with Christ. Everything that's Christ is going to belong to our, us as well because we are adopted sons into the family. We literally take the same place that Christ takes. What does Jesus say to one of the churches in Revelation, right? He says, he who overcomes will sit with me on my throne. Right? We're literally going to Take the place with Christ. That's why Paul says this in, in to the Corinthians. He says, everything belongs to you. It's all yours. Right? Because everything that's Christ is ours. Because we've been adopted into his family. Adoption was such a big deal. Uh, Julius Caesar actually adopted Octavian, who later became Emperor Augustus. Um, so we, we see how it was a huge honor and right to be adopted. Now I want to look at some of the blessings and privileges that we have through adoption. So letter A, throwing blessings and privileges through adoption. Number one, uh, believers are given the spirit through adoption. Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit 
but the spirit of his son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See, the uh, adoption and the spirit are always tied together. The spirit brings us into adoption. The Holy Spirit is given to us. Adoption, possession of the spirit is um, the mark of being a child of God. In Romans 8, 9, it says, uh, however, or I'm sorry, in Romans 8, 9, yeah, it says, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. So the mark of actually belonging to Christ is having the spirit of Christ. And for verse 14, he says, for all that are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. When someone comes to me and asks me, how do I know that I'm really saved? How do I know that I'm a real Christian? I ask them, how do they see the spirits leading in their life? Is the spirit leading them through elimination of the word of God? Is the spirit leading them to mortify the deeds of their flesh? Is it leading them to make war against their sin nature? Is the spirit leading them into fellowship and service with other believers? Because if we could see the, the actual leading of the spirit in our life, we know that we are sons of God because the natural man doesn't have the spirit of God. Number two, believers are given access to the Father from the word Father. Ephesians 2, 17 and 18. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. See, our culture thinks that everybody is a child of God. We're all children of God, they say. And this might be true in the sense of creation, but the Bible doesn't speak of us being God's child that way. It's always through redemption that we are the children of God. Ephesians 2.17 says this, We who were once far off were brought near, giving us access to God. This assumes that we, at one time, didn't have access to God, right? We were once far off. We had to be brought near. Okay? So, so God wasn't always our father. Nowhere does it speak of the universal fatherhood of God. The Bible speaks of the universal neighborhood, but nowhere a universal fatherhood. God is the father of the redeemed. And the fact that we have access to God means our relationship has been changed. At one time, we didn't have access, and now we do. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. See, we, we stand in, in grace as the children of God, right? We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God, and we're standing in this grace. And this is all because his attitude towards us changes. Right? We, we were once under wrath. We were once the objects of his wrath. Right? We were once at enmity with God. We were separated with God. But now this attitude towards us completely changes once we're brought into the family of God. First, we're, we're pitied, it says in the confession. This word pitied, we don't really use it in a, in a positive context anymore. We only think of someone being pitied in a negative way. But in Psalm 103.13, it says, As the father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. That word pity, it, it really means compassion. Right? We have God's compassion 
He will deal compassionately with us like a loving father. That's pretty awesome. Listen to how Psalm 103.13 sounds in the NASB. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So we're pitied, but we're also protected. I mentioned earlier that the adopted child had more rights than the legitimate son had. A biological son could be disinherited, but an adopted son couldn't. I also mentioned that being adopted was uh, connected with the gift of the Spirit. You see, the Spirit is spoken of in the New Testament as a, a down payment or an earnest. An earnest is used when somebody's buying a house, and this house is for sale, and they're interested in the house. They'll put an earnest. They'll put some of the money down to show that they're interested and hold the house. But if they don't come back for the house, they end up losing that, that earnest, that money that they put down. And God says the Spirit's like that in our life. He's so interested in us. He wants us to be with him that he's put an earnest. He's put a down payment in us, and that's his Spirit. And one day he's going to come back and collect us and bring us to be with him. He's going to complete that down payment that he has put on us. The truth is, is we have security being in the family of God. Us getting to heaven isn't our job. It's Jesus' job to make sure we get to heaven. John chapter 6 makes that perfectly clear. Proverbs 14.26 says, In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. His children will have refuge. So we're pitied, we're protected, but we're also provided for. Matthew 6, 31 and 33, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this. He says, do not worry then, saying, what will you eat? What will you drink? Or what will you wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you have a need of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In Psalm 37, David writes this. He says, I've been young and now I'm old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging for bread? It's because God provides for his children. Fourth, he disciplines his children. Because we're in the family of God, we will be disciplined. Hebrews 12, 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It's important when we're reading the Bible that we could differentiate from the different types of God's wrath. There's there's a lot of different types of God's wrath. Uh, But two of these types of wrath are his corrective wrath and his punitive wrath. God's children never experiences punitive wrath. You see, Jesus experienced that for us on the cross. He, He took the punitive punishment of God for our sins. And if God fully spent that wrath where Jesus could say, Tetelestai, it is finished, and, and, and it was appeased, right? We have propitiation, God's wrath was satisfied. Why would he spend that on us? It's already been sent, spent on his son. You see, we experience God's corrective wrath or his discipline. You know, do any of you guys have friends that have kids and they don't punish or discipline their kids. They just kind of let their kids do whatever they want. 
there's kind of a sad thing for CEO, right? Maybe they think that they're like being the cool parent, I don't know, or maybe they think that's loving, right? But the truth of the matter is not disciplining your children is about the most unloving thing you could do for them, right? That is the worst thing that a parent could do is not discipline their children. The one in, way one ensures that their children are going to have problems when they grow up as an adult is to not discipline them as children. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he, even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Kind of the corollary verse to that, or a companion text, is Proverbs 13.24. Right? He who withholds the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. See that if you withhold discipline, that's a sign of hate, God says. Now, we've been brought into God's family, and God so loves us that he murdered his own son for us. Do you not think that he's going to discipline us when we need it? He says if, if he withholds judgment, that's a sign of hate. He, he's not going to not discipline us. God loves us way too much to not discipline or correct us when we go astray. Actually, his chastisement of us is one of the ways that his love is portrayed throughout the New Testament. Number three, believers are heirs with Christ of heaven. So it's only Christ in heaven. Romans 8, 17 and 18 says, And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed of us. This is speaking of future graces, graces that are promised to us in the future. These graces include a home. Christ went to prepare a place for us. And it includes a new perfect body, a body that won't have the capacity to sin or deteriorate like the body that we have now. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 55 says this, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trump, uh, trumpet of God will sound, and the dead uh, will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this imperishable must be or this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You know, sometimes these future graces are all we have. Sometimes... Things are so grim and so discouraging. Life is so hard that all we could do is look to the magnificent things God has promised us in the future. Look to these future graces. Maybe you lose someone you know. Maybe you lose a spouse to cancer or some other way he dies. We could look forward to the reunion that we have at the mansion. Maybe you're so racked with chronic pain that you can't enjoy daily life where you could look forward to the future grace of a new and perfect body that will never feel pain maybe you find yourself homeless you don't have someone 
to come home, where, where you, you've given up hope of ever owning a home. We have a mansion waiting for you in heaven. See, these are future graces, and we need to encourage ourselves with these future graces quite often. We need to remember the things that God has promised us, because sometimes that's all we're going to have to get us through the grim circumstances that living in a fallen world affords us. We need to preach these to ourselves regularly. So there's a lot of privileges and benefits we have to being in the family of God. But there's some responsibilities as well. We'll go through these fast. Um, so for letter B, on the word responsibilities. We have responsibilities being in God's family. Number one, we are to walk in the light. So go and walk in light. Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. What does Paul mean? What does he mean by light? What does walk in the light mean? Well, light is a symbol of holiness in the Bible. Walk has to do with the way that we live our life. We're to strive to live holy lives. We're to try to live lives that are distinct from the world. That's what God is calling us to do. And number two, we are to shun evil. On the word evil. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18. Paul says this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Because we've been called to God, and God is holy, we're to live holy. We're to live lives separate from the evilness of this world. We're to shun evil. Number three, we're to purify ourselves. So turn the word purify. 2 Corinthians 7 1 says, therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. 1 John chapter 3 verses 2 through 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Right? So one of our responsibilities is to purify ourselves, to try to cleanse ourselves, and try to live a, a life that reflects Jesus. Right? Number four, we are to live obediently. And the word obediently. Think about a child. What's a child's number one job? It's the number one responsibility that a child has is to obey their parents. Right? I mean, that's one of the commandments. Honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment of promise, Paul says. But you can live long, enjoy your days. Well, we're adopted into the family of God, making God our father. 
Therefore, we need to obey God. Matthew 12, verse 50 says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he shall be my mother and brother and sister. Right? Jesus' mom and brothers, they come looking for Jesus. They think Jesus has gone insane. They think he's going to say something that's going to get himself killed and bring shame on the family, which is true, but it's actually for God's glory. Right? But they're looking for him. And, and Jesus is in a room with his disciples, and they come in and say, hey, your mother and your brother and sisters, they're outside. And Jesus says, what? He looks around this room and, and points at his disciples and says, who are my mother and my brother and sisters? But those who obey the will of my Father. First Peter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I mentioned how right, you, you start to take on the characteristics of your, of your parents, a child does. The longer that we are walking in the family of God, the more we should take on the characteristics and the nature of our Father. And our Father is holy, so we should be holy as well. 1 John 5, 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments aren't burdensome to us. We know that we love God, that we're a part of his family when we observe his commandments. His commandments aren't burdensome. Number five, we are to live in peace and love. So go in peace and love. Love and peace really should be the hallmark of the believer, the fruits of the Spirit, after all. And if by definition a believer is someone who possesses the Spirit of God, he or she should display the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5, 2 through 26 is where we find the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Right? If we're in God's family, we're not going to be boastful. We're not going to be, you know, making bets who could be better than the other one and boasting, I'm better than you. No, we're going to be loving each other. We're going to have joy for each other. We're going to peace with each other. We're going to have patience with each other. We're going to be kind to each other. We're going to show goodness to each other. We're going to be faithful to each other. And we're going to be gentle with one another. The exact opposite of boastful, challenging, and envying. And we, we should especially try to live in peace and love with the believers, right? Because they're our brothers and sisters. They're in our family. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Just about every parent I've talked to, one of their biggest delights is when they see their children living in harmony with one another. When they're not fighting, but loving. 
you know, when they're not stealing from each other, but helping each other. When they're not arguing with each other, but encouraging each other. Well, God gets the same enjoyment when we, his kids, have the same kind of unity in his family. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Lastly, we are to be watchful. Put in the word watchful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 11. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. So when we think of being watchful, we we tend to think of being watchful for Christ's return, right? Being ready for the Lord to return, to be doing what God has called us to do, so that when he returns, we're not doing something shameful and, you know, and have to deal with that, right? Well, that's one way to be, we're to be watchful, but we're also to be watchful for each other, right? You are your brother's keeper, right? That is clear. We're, we're to, to care for one another, protect one another. We're to bear each other's burdens. We're to encourage everyone as long as it's today, the writer of Hebrews says. We're in the family of God, right? And God chose us and he adopted us. And we're always going to be in his family. Just like being in any family, being a part of God's family comes with rights and privileges. And those outside of his family don't enjoy. Membership in the family of God also includes responsibilities. But it's a, a pretty awesome thing that we are in the family of God, that we have assurance of our salvation. We have assurance that we're going to be with God forever. We have assurance of these future blessings that he's promised us. And we've got just an amazing group of brothers and sisters that God is working in. And we can see the work of redemption happening in. And we can see God's glory shining through. And, and we could just enjoy. Amen. So, God, I thank you that you have adopted us into your family, Lord. And I thank you that for all that that entails. Uh, I, I think of all the things that we could have. And I, I think about how how much an orphan wants adoption, how much they want to be in a family, how much they want a real mom and dad. And I think about of the lost person in this world and, and, and how in many ways we reflect that orphan. And that you've taken us and spiritually adopted us into your forever family is such a joy, such a privilege, Lord. And help us to be thankful for that. Help us to not take it for granted. And help us to take your gospel to the ends of the world so that we can see others adopted into your family as well. We want to see your family grow. We want your family to be as big as it could possibly be because heaven will be better with more people in it. We love you. We commit these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.